Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You should do the the pew-pew sounds every single time you do a transition. Yeah, just like that. (laughs) Unreal. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by Vox Senior Correspondent Herman Lopez. Hello. And Policy Reporter Jerusalem Demsis. Hello, hello. And today we're going to be talking about something that's both very relevant to the news and also totally fantastical. Open borders. You might have heard this term used by either idealistic advocates who want unfettered immigration or a world without borders, or you might have heard it on Fox News just as an attack on the Democratic Party, which very much does not favor open borders. How many times have the 2020 Democrats assured us that they don't actually support the radical agenda of open borders? If you don't like walls or fences, then what do you like? What is your better idea for having a secure border? Why even have a border if you don't know who's coming and for what purpose? As it concerns the Democrats, the Democrats today support open borders. It's the radical NGOs that would like to open the border, knowing full well that doing so will result in the deaths of many thousands of Americans from the drugs that are also coming across the border. But open borders is a fascinating concept, and we wanted to do an episode exploring the cases for and against it, both as a concrete demand and as as a kind of far-off ideal. It's hard to believe now, looking at at the world today uh, and and how you have to travel between countries right now. But most of the world had basically open borders until World War I. In the case of the U.S., we had some specific super racist restrictions like the Chinese Exclusion Act, which started in the 1880s. But our first like real large-scale across-the-board crackdowns came in the 1920s. So for a lot of, most of our history, we had pretty unfettered immigration uh, to the United States. In recent years, there's been a, a growing movement from libertarians like Fabio Rojas and Brian Kaplan and leftists like Teresa Hayter and Reese Jones, who have argued for open borders to come back. They argue for it as a, a moral and a political ideal. And it's an ideal that I think each of us sees some appeal in. I don't know if all of us would, would identify as open borders advocates, but it also raises some really important practical questions. And I know all of us have things to say about sort of the politics of open borders. So 
Herman, walk me through what's interesting to you about open borders and, and maybe what appeals to you about it. So I should start that I am increasingly skeptical of the concept given the last few years, even though on the merits, I would say like it, it sounds great. I'm supportive of it, but we're going to go more into this later in the episode about the politics. But that that side has made me much more skeptical. But I think if you were to make the case for open borders and just looser immigration policies in general, it's really not difficult. There's just so much from like a economic standpoint, there's so much good research out there just showing that like, yes, this this, this works. I think Matt Iglesias, who I think people listening to The Weeds probably know, he has a clear breakdown on this from 2019 at Vox that just kind of breaks down the, the research on um, Im- looser immigration policies in general and why they're economically beneficial. Also, his book, One Billion Americans, is good too. Uh, talks a lot about this. But basically, studies on immigration have consistently found that more immigration is good for just about everyone. Immigrants tend to complement native-born Americans in the job market, not compete for the same jobs. Turns out that having more people in your country fuels growth and therefore can fuel wages for everyone, which, of course, makes sense. More people means a bigger economy, very naturally. One way to think about it is just that immigrants are potential new customers for every new business on top of starting businesses themselves. There are plenty of examples out there. You can just look them all up. And I, I just want to emphasize here that like this is the economic consensus. Like there, It is really hard to find research that suggests that immigration is not good for the economy. I think the, the big example here would be the work from George Borges. Even his findings, first of all, they're an outlier in the field of like labor economics. And even he has said that like as a whole, immigration probably helps the economy. It's just he raises questions about like whether I think a slice of less educated native-born Americans lose out. And setting aside economics, uh, the immigrants just have a bunch of other benefits like lower crime. Immigrants turns out do less crime than native-born Americans, despite what Donald Trump has been saying in the past few years. And there's also some interesting uh like research from criminology and economics showing that like integration like neighborhoods that are more diverse seem to just have less crime in general than than other kinds of neighborhoods which suggests like look if we had more more immigrants coming in they were integrating into these cities and all that that could explain why for example new york city's crime rate has plummeted over the past few decades so there's a lot of stuff going on there but in general immigration just seems like a a a big good for for the world and for the U.S. in particular. And that's kind of what led me down the path to saying like, look, yeah, there's a lot of promise in open borders. Yeah, I want to I want to get to Jerusalem, but I, I do think it's, it's worth just underlining there just the scale of the economic benefits. This isn't like a grows the economy one or two percent faster kind of thing. The modeling I've seen around this sort of the, the median estimate is that it would roughly double the size of, of the world economy if, if people were able to, to move between countries freely. I was like interested in immigration because I'm a human being in the world. But, but I think the thing that, that got me sort of interested in open borders as an idea is just, just the scale of that. It's something like opening up the labor force to women or, or people of color, that it's a similar kind of influx that's really transformative. 
but but Jerusalem, uh, what got you into Open Borders? Yeah, I mean, I think that a, a lot of the um, and a lot of Weeds listeners will have kind of a general sense that there are massive economic benefits and massive economic gains that can be made from this kind of policy. But I just want to underscore how much of a moral case that there is for Open Borders. You know, what we're talking about when we're saying that uh, people cannot move freely is that if they are at risk of being killed, if there is a genocide happening, if there is massive harms to them happening because they are women because they are LGBTQ, because they are a different racial ethnic group, that they are literally trapped in the place that they're in. And like, we would view this as, you know, unbelievably immoral if you like locked someone in a room with someone else that that was going to kill them. But like, that's like effectively what closing your borders is um, or making it impossible for people to leave is in situations where there are um, these types of harms happening. People like stability in a lot of cases. Like people are not leaving their hometowns where they have social connections and ways to have reasonably good standards of living en masse without some kind of like larger outside force that's either calling them or pushing them out of their current state. And so I think before even like diving into all of the economic benefits here, we have to understand the massive cost that we're imposing on individuals by not allowing them to move freely. And also to try to understand like why our default expectation is that people should be restricted and not that people should be able to move where they want to move. The borders themselves are actually what is is being artificially imposed on society. It's not it's not something that just like, exists in the ground when you when you go from Mexico to to the United States here. And so I think there's a really high burden I think morally to say that like we should be allowed to trap people out of of different places where they can be and feel safe. And you know post um, World War II that became like a much more like accepted kind of framework that if, you know, refugees were coming uh, and they were at risk of death and especially things like genocide, that, you know, it would be a moral bad for us to say we're not going to let you into our country in that circumstance. Um, I think that that kind of thing goes in and out of vogue based on like what the dominant coverages of who the refugees are and like what's actually happening and like where they're going to come in and also like the economic circumstances on the ground in the countries. But I think at, at the very core here, what we're talking about is um, uh, it is a choice between whether or not to allow individuals freedom. And then just to kind of build a little bit more here on the economic case, I mean, uh, as Dylan and, and Herman talked about, this is like, you know, a huge, huge thing that we're talking about here in terms of growth potential. And it's not just the fact that, um, you know, firms can hire the best people. It's also the fact that, like, if you're like a really ingenious person who has the ability to um, develop the next, you know, vaccine or, or cure for cancer or whatever it is, if you don't have access to education, like you are limited by that existence. Like you are someone living in a rural village and you're a woman who's not, you're not given access to education or whatever it is, like the world is missing out on the ability to cure cancer because we're not allowing you to move to a place where you can get access to the things that would provide you the tools to do that. Like there was a recent statistic that came out that immigrants have been awarded 37% of the Nobel Prizes won by Americans in chemistry, medicine, and physics since 2000. Like that's an enormous <laughs> proportion of our Nobel Prizes in extremely important fields. So I, I think that there's, there's also that aspect of it as well. I think like whether or not you come to supporting open borders as an overall position, like there's lots of arguments to be had about that in particular. It's just this idea that like you're doing harm to other people just because they're in other countries and that's okay is at least to me just morally offensive. Of course, like people will come to different conclusions based on like policy implications, what's better for a country on net. But like at the very least, there should be some bar for justification for saying like, yes, I want to keep these people in this other country in poverty. I mean, I am a Venezuelan immigrant. I know my country is like in a horrible state right now. Basically, all my family has fled the country. And like I point to that as an example of like, I am glad they were able to leave that country because it is 
in a horrible state, but there are lots of people who did not have the ability. My mom brought us here in the, to the U.S. in the 90s because Procter & Gamble, the company she worked for, was behind her coming here. If my mom did not have a giant corporation behind her, would I be stuck in a country with like high crime, high poverty, anti-LGBTQ discrimination as a gay man? Like All these things are worth considering, I think, from like a moral perspective. Another thing I would say is like immigrants who come to the U.S. do contribute back to the economies they left. When the U.S. had a lot of immigration coming from Germany, Norway, Ireland, like you cannot say that those countries are now destroyed. There were just there were a bunch of immigrants flowing into the U.S. from those countries, seeing opportunity, and they were often, you know, interacting with their families back home, sending money back home, like funding projects back home. It's just that the U.S. gave them unique opportunities they did not have there, and that's like an important thing when we're talking about a policy that could potentially double the size of the world economy. Like everyone is going to benefit from that. It's not just the U.S. And it is just to say, like, in, in some ways, it's cheesy. And yeah, but it is like a policy that shows in, in many ways how we are really in this planet together, functioning as an overall society, not just in our siloed borders. I once tried to sell a sort of right-wing friend on, on open borders by uh, arguing that it was a form of free market and governments. Um, that, that right now you get one government, the, the country you live in. But what if you could choose from 192 different governments? <laughs> um, there would probably be some useful market pressure on those countries to like not do things that make people want to quit en masse and, and go and leave to another place. And that's sort of like a cute way of putting it. But but I think there's something important there that Albert Hirschman, the, the economist, had a, a great book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. It was basically about how people can react to, to stuff they don't like. And just adding exit as an option to advocate for yourself seems like it could profoundly change some things about the situation in, in some oppressive countries. And just to look over the history of like world atrocities, like there, there are a lot of things you can argue about in, in terms of the American response to the Holocaust, whether the US should have bombed uh, train lines going to Auschwitz, whether it should have bombed Auschwitz. But like one very easy thing it could have done is just accept refugees from Germany in the 30s. And it just didn't. They turned away boats uh, of Jewish immigrants trying to get to the U.S. I remember go, like going to, to some Holocaust exhibit when I was in, in middle school and kids were always like, why didn't they leave? It's like they couldn't. No one would take them. Um, and, and having a release valve when like truly awful crimes against humanity are happening strikes me as like, important and maybe a better response in some ways than sort of full-fledged military humanitarian interventions. Like I can easily see how an American attack on Rwanda in 1994 could have gone wrong. It's harder for me to see the really negative repercussions of letting Rwandans immigrate to the U.S. The actual, the fundamental thing that's happening here, right, is that because a lot of the arguments have been sort of framed in this, look at the economic growth that we can talk about here and not in the human rights kind of framework, there are a lot of leftists who are like very much view the sort of open borders argument, not in a humanitarian case, but as like a scheme by companies and corporations to increase the flow of labor to make it easier for them to undercut um, wages here um, domestically. And, you know, there's... Uh, I could literally spend like 30 minutes on this podcast just listing the studies that show increased immigration <laughs> and refugees do not <laughs> reduce the wages of native-born Americans. But I, I won't do that. We can just link as many of them as possible as our soap producers will allow us to in the show notes for you. Um, but I, I think the, the fundamental thing here, though, is this idea that 
we've somehow coded this idea of mobility and freedom to be sort of like a center-right idea, when in fact, for a long period of time, like that was something that a lot of civil rights and social justice folks were really focused on. Like the ability of African-Americans to like leave the South and go North, I mean, under slavery was hotly contested and was like an idea of like, you know, people would have to, um, I mean, famously, you would have to return them to the South and the North and you would be in trouble if you did not. There was, that was part of the compromise before the Civil War to, to try to prevent a, a, a war from breaking out. I mean, issues of mobility are, I think, at the core of most social justice concerns. The ability to leave a job, like, uh, you know, as Dylan mentioned, the ability to exit quitting without, uh, you know, is is a form of power as a, as a person in the labor market. Um, the ability to tell your employer that, no, you're not going to do that and you're just going to leave and you're going to go somewhere else and get a better job. Like, that is freedom. And I think that a lot of times when you think about this kind of stuff, um, I think it is much, it's very intuitive from a sense of like, uh, and maybe my urbanist friends will get mad at this, is like, when when you get a car for the first time or you have a car for the first time when you're when you're like in your late teens and maybe you grew up in the suburbs and like that level of freedom that you feel is something that is like very, uh, you know, I think it is at the very bedrock of what is necessary for people to actually be able to have any kind of agency over the course of their lives. So, you know, I do think it is kind of sad here that we have gotten to the place where um, this idea of mobility and and physical freedom in that sense is is coded sort of right wing when I think for a, the majority of history, that was a very left wing progressive idea. I think we, we've gone through the the sort of benefits of, of immigration pretty well. Um, so I'm going to uh, jump to a break and then we can talk a bit about some of the downsides or political challenges that open borders faces as an idea. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. 
We are back and we're talking about open borders. So there are several cases against open borders. Uh, Jerusalem, before the break, mentioned the kind of worker competition argument that people like Angela Nagel and Bernie Sanders have, have made in the past that sort of importing low-wage labor is going to undercut uh, the working class in, uh, in the rich countries receiving immigrants. I agree with Jerusalem that I think the evidence that actually happens in at much scale is weak. Sort of our best analog to a flood akin to open borders would be something like the the movement of women into the workforce in the 60s and 70s. And I think if, if there were costs for men of that, they were minor and relative. Um, like men, men are still doing better today than, than they did in 1960, um, despite some sort of very pessimistic uh, economics trying to convince you otherwise. I think the bigger concern I have is about sort of social solidarity and, and sustainability that an idea that you can't get a majority of people behind isn't an idea. It's it's a position. Um, and no one has ever been helped by someone holding the position of open borders. They get helped by people in power trying to, to push for ideas like that. And there's just a lot of evidence that there are massive backlashes to large-scale immigration. Um, so we're, in the show notes, we're going to link to a recent evidence review by uh, the late economist Alberto Alessina, who did great work on diversity in politics, and uh, Marco Tabellini, that's sort of reviewing all the recent research on, uh, on immigration and backlashes. And they find that in, in most cases, uh, there is a pretty substantial backlash uh, to, to immigrants that leads to increased support for anti-immigrant parties, less desire to redistribute, that people don't want their taxes to be raised to pay for benefits for immigrants uh, uh, more than they, they feel that way about natives. And in general, they, they find that these studies that they're reviewing don't find this has much to do with economics. So people aren't lashing back at immigration because they're afraid of losing their job. It mostly seems social cultural, which is like polite economist ease for xenophobia and racism. <laughs> and like, that's a real powerful force. And I think connects to some recent debates over where the Democratic Party and left parties generally should position themselves in order to get reelected. I think it's pretty clear that the Democratic Party would go down in flames if it openly campaigned on open borders. But there are there are degrees. Mata Fridriksson, who's the, the prime minister of Denmark, became prime minister basically by running an anti-immigrant platform. She was like, you know what? I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm a social democrat. I want to strengthen the Danish welfare state and uh, fuck them immigrants. Um, we're, we're going to continue our policy of stealing all their valuables to pay for their stay, which is a real thing they do in Denmark. And she is wildly popular. And I think there's a very cynical, but like real and somewhat persuasive argument that, that she knows what's up, <laughs> that, that she has tapped into something about her voters. What do you guys make about this literature? And, and sort of can you avoid backlashes of this kind? So, so in two, 2016, I think one of the most telling moments about this in the U.S. context was when it was a Latinos for Trump co-founder, us all about the threat of taco trucks in every corner. <laughs> and it's imposing and it's causing problems. If you don't do something about it, you're going to have taco trucks every corner. I, at the time, mocked it. I was like, that sounds wonderful. And, you know, lots of liberals engaged in that kind of rhetoric. But, like, what he was voicing is something that is clearly very, very, very real in the U.S., particularly on the right, but maybe not even just the right. And just this idea that, like, our culture is changing too fast. Immigrants are making our culture change too fast. I mean, you see this in calls to, like, make English the official language, make it so people 
have to stop talking in Spanish and schools. And part of this is that like immigrants do shift cultures. Like I'm going around the U.S. where I live and I wish more places had arepas, like Venezuelan food everywhere. And like there are like Venezuelan business people starting restaurants that have arepas. And I'm very thankful for it. This is just how it works. And I don't know. It, it is not hard for me to understand like why people would find this alarming. They, they think that um, whatever it is that they see in American culture that has made it great is collapsing if, if we allow all these other cultures to creep in. But I think there's also some like genuine trade-offs. Arlie Hochschilds in her book, Stranger in Their Own Lands, I think her analogy of line cutting really captures the sentiment of how these people feel well, which is just like, like if you imagine a line to just about any opportunity in the U.S., they see that like women have cut in front of them in line. Like these are predominantly white men, to be clear, that women are now cutting in front of them in line. People of color are now cutting. And like you imagine more immigrants pouring into the country. Now immigrants are cutting in front of them in, in line. And like we've talked about this. The research does not show that things are this zero sum. Like it turns out that immigrants, more immigration expands the size of the pie. So people get more shots at it overall. But like it's not hard to imagine why somebody wouldn't think that's the case. I mean, surely there are companies out there that like are, are preferring in certain positions. They wish they had more people of color because it turns out they have a bunch of old white people already on staff and would like to diversify their workforce. Like this is not an uncommon position for modern big companies to find themselves right in. So like that fits into the line cutting analogy. And it is just to say that like, like while I, as, as somebody who's like generally progressive on on these immigration issues, just it's not hard for me to understand why some people feel different on that cultural front, and also maybe even on on some of the economic fronts as well. The reason why it's not that irrational to be afraid that gains from growth are not going to be equitably distributed is because gains from growth are not equitably distributed <laughs> and that American policy has not attempted to do many of the things that would be possible to ensure that when we've seen massive increases in in growth or in, in productivity, that those go equitably down to other individuals. I mean, when we see tech companies and tech billionaires making this insane amounts of wealth, wealth that cannot be spent over the course of you know several lifetimes, I mean, and then there are people who are Americans who are homeless and we're seeing veterans, people who have fought and potentially been injured and harmed for the United States end up homeless and not have access to basic services from the federal government. I mean, that is a um, massive policy failure, which would indicate to most people, I mean, all people, including myself, that if we were to do open borders, the U.S. government would be very, very, very bad at doing the mitigatory policies necessary to make sure that people were actually left better off in the ways that we we could see happening. And I think that that's something that's really important here. I think a lot of times people are like, why are people so opposed to these sorts of pro-growth policies, whether it's increasing immigration or or other types of restrictions on the labor market? And a lot of it is because not potentially that they don't believe that there will be growth, but that, you know, if you're not going to tax and redistribute, if you're not going to ensure that there are labor protections in place to ensure that um, the, the, the intermediary frictional costs of that kind of systemic change aren't going to fall hard on, on, on people. So I think that the prerequisite towards a lot of the policy preferences that people who are pro-growth have is first dealing with the fact that we need to um, regulate and oversee these kinds of companies and make sure they're treating individuals well, and also take 
take seriously that there is a rational fear of the asymmetry between one individual and what it feels like one small community and the influx of either a large group of immigrants or uh, I know a large company coming up against you. And that's that's rational and but can be dealt with with relevant policy measures. I could imagine somebody listening to this episode and being like, well, a lot of the worries about the political backlash are in reaction to Trump, which is true. And like, you know, maybe Trump is just unique. Maybe like there there have been a lot of instances where Trump seems like his own special case in politics. And, you know, maybe it it isn't so much anti-immigration backlash as like something special about Trump. But I think it's worth zooming out and emphasizing that that is not the case, Not, not even in recent history. Like Germany let literally a million refugees in. And in the 2017 elections, the far right AFD, like their their anti-immigrant party essentially shot up in parliament, like gained a bunch of seats and Angela Merkel's party lost a bunch of seats. And like you could tell that Merkel saw the connection between refugees and the politics here. And she like started backing off in some important ways. Okay, well, let's just say, I think Germany is the success story. I think that if we're talking about Germany... yeah, okay. Jerusalem. I think, pitch us on pitch us on Merkel. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I think a few things here. One is yes, there was obviously some short run backlash. There's research by um, Christopher Klassen and Lauren McLaren about whether immigration produces public backlash, and they find similarly to the research that um, Dylan cited earlier that there is public backlash in the short to medium run, but in the longer run, habituation cancels out the backlash effect within a few decades. What happens with Merkel, right? And there's, thankfully, there's a really good Michelle Goldberg column that came out very recently um, that's just talking about uh, how Merkel actually was right in the end. Merkel survives that 2017 backlash and all those refugees, like a million refugees essentially are in Germany. And now in this past election, the left is actually gaining gained seats and immigration was not an issue in the recent German election. And the reason why you were able to do this is because they didn't just like say like, okay, open the borders, like we'll see what happens. Like this is fine. We have a humanitarian obligation, but they were very intelligent in how they decided to pursue the policy. Firstly, they didn't just allow for kind of ghettoization to happen by allowing people to flood in into one area and create this pocket of concentrated poverty. What they did is they tried to distribute people evenly in some places across the country. They provided social services. They worked really hard to try and make sure that people were actually getting employed. At this point, the uh, refugees are still less employed than um, the average native-born German. But I mean, I think there are a lot of COVID effects there that are influencing that um, as well. But at the at the very same during a massive refugee crisis, Germany opened its doors to a bunch of Syrian, Afghani, Iraqi refugees into the country. Now, them and their children are going to be able to live there in perpetuity. And the cost of that was you know, there's a lot of cultural um, uh, costs there. There's also, of course, I think famously the attacks on um, women on uh, 2015, 2016, New Year's Eve that occurred, uh, the sexual assault attacks by migrants that occurred that night and, and, and other kind of cultural and xenophobic attacks that happened on other migrants um, are also quite costly. But the idea that the benefits here did not vastly outweigh that I think are, is incorrect, especially because the political system stabilized. And right now we do not see that right wing backlash actually being persistent across elections. First of all, I would point out that Merkel said at one point in response to this, like they were very strict about forcing integration in a way that I don't think the U.S. necessarily is. Like she literally said multiculturalism is a sham, which is like, I I think if like Biden went out there and said that today, there would be a lot of progressive activists extremely angry at him. And personally, I think rightfully so, but that's beside the point. But anyway, just, just to focus on the short term here, the reason I want to focus on that is because The U.S. political system is much less adaptable, much less flexible than the German political system, which 
first of all, just by virtue of being a parliamentary system, gives it much more flexibility. And when Merkel says something and when her party's going with something, they can do it. The U.S. is not like that. If we have an anti-immigrant backlash in a winner-takes-all election in the U.S., then like that can put Trump in power. It's not just that his party or his coalition would gain some seats in Congress. He could, they could run up the whole thing and win. That's the reason why, when I look at the research that says that, like, yes, this balances out in a few decades, I don't, I don't know if that's good enough. Like, if this short-term backlash is enough to say, like, look, is, is two years of open borders going to lead to four or eight years of Trump or a Trump-like figure? Like, that's a real cost. Is more immigration worth sacrificing action on climate change or healthcare for in the short term? Like, that's also a real cost in the U.S., and it is just to like frame this in, while I think that Germany is a success story for itself, I'm not sure if that example is applicable in the U.S. And the parts that are applicable in the U.S. are that those short-term costs that potentially lead to a right-wing backlash. Yeah, I, I think I'm more with Herman than Jerusalem on, on this. Just, I mean, the German experience, I agree with Jerusalem, is, has been mostly positive. I would have done what, what Merkel did. I, I think she was correct to do it. I think in, in retrospect, it worked out. But even accepting the differences that Herman just laid out with the U.S. and Germany, like every other country, <laughs> like Italy, uh, part of the government now is the Lega, which is like a super far right anti-immigrant party. It started as a party trying to secede the north of Italy because they hated the dirty Southerners so much. And then they decided that the Southerners were racist against Muslims, too. And so they got the Nord out of Lega Nord <laughs> um, and started appealing to racists <laughs> in the South as well. They're in the government. Uh, in France, if Marine Le Pen does not win the next election, it will probably be because she lost to this guy named Eric Zemmour, who is like somehow even more racist than she is. But like he's a full great replacement theorist who thinks that Muslims are, are being imported as part of a conspiracy to destroy France. Geert Wilders routinely gets a third of the vote in the Netherlands. Swedish Democrats, like literally were started as a neo-Nazi party, <laughs> are a, a large and increasing share in parliament. So it's just like, again and again, and Brexit would not have happened if it weren't for anti-immigrant segment. It's just everywhere. <laughs> like Canada and Japan are the only countries I can think of that haven't had a substantial anti-immigrant backlash. And at least in Japan's case, it's because Japan barely has any immigrants. And it just seems like a very persistent feature of contemporary politics. And I think the other thing, just to zoom out from, from this discussion, we've all been discussing backlashes to some millions of, of Syrian migrants and other migrants coming to Europe uh, in the aftermath of the Syrian civil war. That was a big movement of people. It is like twiddly sticks next to open borders. And so if we're thinking about what the margins are, I think even if you look at a situation like Germany and say, you know what, she pulled this off, like she took a hit, she bore it, uh, we got through it. That I don't think is a reliable guide to what would happen if you suddenly had like 50 million people enter the U.S., I think that everyone serious who's talking about and advocating for open borders is not talking about tomorrow, let's push a button and no borders exist. I think that there is a question here about what kind of world are we moving towards? Are we moving towards a world where there is maximal freedom of movement given certain kinds of like basic restrictions around like if there's a pandemic, like obviously you would be doing different things. So I think that that's, that's the first thing that I would say. And secondly, I think that like, yeah, I think that there are a lot of problems with the American political system that create a lot of problems for us, not just on immigration, but also in our 
our ability to do basically any other policy that we think would be beneficial in the long run. But we need some time for the political system to weather some sort of short term harms here. I mean, that's true of, I think, a lot of the healthcare proposals people would support in this cause. And that's true of a lot of environmental proposals that people would support in this call. Things like a carbon tax or even other types of things that we think are necessary in order to fight climate change. So, I mean, I think this is like actually uh, probably ties into the broader political conversation people are having now around popularism, which is, you know, if folks are readers, if our listeners have not heard of it, this is sort of the idea that's being pushed by folks like David Shore, who's a who's a data analyst who talks about how it's important that the Democratic Party be aware of how messaging and policies that are really unpopular are going to um, impact uh, the ability for them to stay in power, which, you know, it's, it's a relatively, um, uh, you know, simple idea. But the broader uh, conversation would I think the discourse is not focused on is when is it important to actually take on something that might be short term unpopular because of the long term actual um, literal benefits to people and also political benefits that you can actually gain as well in the long term here. So I agree that there's a lot of like short term frictional things that we need to do. We would probably want to do the types of things like heartland visas where you are kind of pushing immigrants towards depressed uh, Midwestern towns uh, that that, you know, would really need and, and, and um, likely welcome the economic boom that these kinds of groups would provide. You'd want to distribute them in some kind of even way. You would want to be having a whole of government approach towards preventing any kind of massive criminal activity towards ensuring that there is some level of, uh, you know, cultural cohesion. And of course, I I think that it would require some level of messaging from the proponents of these kinds of immigration policies that there is not some attempt to sort of destroy American culture. One of the key things that uh, Merkel does frequently is use some sorts of rhetoric that people might consider xenophobic in order to maintain this idea that her party and she are not trying to destroy German cultural identity. So I agree, there's a lot that would need to be done right here in order for it to kind of work out. But I think that when we're talking about something that has the not only just the economic opportunity to lift millions of people out of poverty and also create a better world for the current citizens that live in the United States, but also preventing millions of people from just dying. Like, I just think yeah. that it's, 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 it's important that, that those are the costs that we're weighing here. Are there any like first order cases against open borders that you find persuasive? We've mostly been talking about the, the political backlash, but I think if someone listening to this might, might think to themselves, it seems like they all think this is a good idea, but it's just not politically possible. Are there things about it to either of you that seem like there or sort of cases against it that seem particularly persuasive? I think I would say the the biggest thing is like when we're talking about a bunch of the research supporting this, none of the research is really looking at like none of the real world research is looking at actual open borders, given that modern developed countries have not really done this. So just that uncertainty for me is a good reason to not just like kind of like Jerusalem was saying, like not just jump into open borders tomorrow. It, it's it's a reason to, you know, try loosening immigration uh, over time, allowing more people in over time. And then maybe eventually you get to a point where open borders make sense. But that uncertainty for me is a, is a big thing. I mean, we it, it's totally possible. We try this and there's some like awful effect that we did not think of just by virtue of, you know, the world being very different from 200 years ago when open borders were largely standard, right? Like, it, it's not hard to imagine that that happens. If, if somebody's listening to that and thinking like, well, the, like, what what about the first order effect? I would just say, pol- like, cultural and political backlash are serious consequences. Yeah. Like, you have to weigh those seriously, even if it's not directly related to the policy. I think in this case, it is directly related enough to the policy. Like, it's something we've seen consistently enough to be worried just on the merits 
about the political backlash and cultural backlash that we see with laxer immigration policy? I think um, I'm not persuaded by this, but I do find it a reasonable argument that it would be concerning to have like extreme homogeneity across the entire world that you might expect if there was a level of free movement. My first experience of this was like a teenager flying from uh, D.C. to London for the first time and feeling like, you know, things actually seem kind of similar here. Like there's a Starbucks right there and like, you know, people are speaking English. And then I went to Paris and I was like, okay, I mean, the cultures, I mean, you're seeing like different architecture, but like there are teenagers and like the music that's being played is the music that's played in America. There's some level of like, I think I think people have called this like flattening of, of culture that occurs when you do have globalization. And, you know, some people would call that, you know, things are being selected for the things that people like. But I also think that it's just like you also do get less diversity in diverse cultures and that smaller cultures could end up getting um, sort of wiped out by the force of globalization and the force of the fact that there's a larger market for existing Western cultures, ideas, music, art, all that kind of thing. And I think that's could be a massive harm there. I don't really buy that that would necessarily happen. You know, I think the alternative that people are talking about here, which is that we should attempt to create development in these countries that are struggling. I mean, if someone knows how to do that, <laughs> there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you. Um, <laughs> I, I think the really big problem here um, that we're having and the reason why we're even discussing this topic to begin with is just the fact that we have absolutely no idea how to spur development of the sort that we're looking at in Western developed nations in developing nations. Like this has been a problem for a long time and it's a problem that everyone's been trying to do. We can't even do it in our own country. Like right now, if it was easy for a mayor to say like, okay, I know how to turn around like Milwaukee and Milwaukee's a lot wealthier than a lot of places that we're talking about here. Like that's, uh, uh, I don't mean to shit on Milwaukee. I just mean like any Rust Belt city. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's important here to talk about like, there's not like an obvious alternative to pulling people out of poverty where they are. If there was, like we would likely be doing it in some capacity. So to me, I, I, you know, the cultural flattening argument is is a is an interesting one. I think it's an important one and one that had to be taken seriously. But I think it's ultimately not persuasive enough. It is. It is an interesting argument. And I think one interesting data point is the U.S., where culture has flattened a lot between the states, but not entirely. Texas is still Texas. California is still California. So we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about open borders inside the U.S. and a new paper about how location affects economic outcomes uh, within the U.S. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to close out with today's white paper, which is called, quite simply, Location, Location, Location. <laughs> and it's by David Card, who just won the Nobel Prize for Economics, uh, his Berkeley colleague, Jesse Rothstein, and the census is Moise Yi. Uh, so, Jerusalem, this paper is all about cities and housing. And so I'm going to ask you to explain it to us, since you know way more about cities and housing than, than Herman or I. 
the authors basically use U.S. Census Bureau data to follow people as they move across different commuting zones. And what they find is that moving to a larger commuting zone or a city or something like that, like imagine moving from a small town in Georgia to you know New York City, that means you're going to get a wage premium. And this is something that I think intuitively a lot of us sort of know, like we know you can make more money in big cities, but like it's actually really hard to disaggregate all the effects of like why this is. What the authors find is that a large part of this is the fact that people who move to big cities are people who have quote unquote human capital that makes them able to get these high wages. But there are a bunch of um, effects even when you talk about lower down the income ladder or the the education ladder. Um, folks without college and who would just have high school or some high school are still getting this sort of premium, even if they don't have those external signifiers of human capital. So there's a lot of unobserved human capital. What makes you a good worker that is allowing people to have that um, higher wage premium. And I think the thing that's really interesting to me about this here is that they don't just find that you get this wage premium. They also find that the cost of housing in these cities and these large commuting zones is so high that moving there actually reduces your real wages. You are becoming poorer by moving to these places, despite the increase in wages here. And anyone who's, I guess, ever listened to me talk on this podcast uh, <laughs> knows that like the reason why housing costs are so high in these big cities is because of artificial restrictions. Basically, we no longer have open borders within the United States. We have a system where we have created labor market restrictions, not just the zoning laws that have made it impossible for individuals to build enough homes such that there would be a- enough supply of affordable housing so that prices would come down. And and people could afford to live in these places, but also like other things that are raising the cost of moving to these places as well, um, like occupational licensing, et cetera. But anyway, I think the the really interesting thing here is they're like trying to theorize near the end of this uh, section where they talk about housing, about why it is that people are still moving to these cities despite getting like a wage decline. Um, they talk a little bit about like the amenities, like obviously living in a city is more than just the fact that you get more money. Like people like may have preferences for for density. They could have preferences for living in uh, near certain communities. Like obviously when you're in a city, there's a higher proportion of uh, minority groups, whether it's LGBTQ groups or there's different, uh, you know, black and brown groups that you can actually have um, community building that you wouldn't have in smaller places. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But I also think it indicates that at some point, like, you know, people are willing to pay some amount of money to have access to those communities. They're not willing to pay like infinitely high amounts of money to have access to those communities. And I think that like, especially as we're talking about a labor shortage here um, coming up, it's going to become a real problem when lower income workers eventually stop moving and there's not anyone to do any of the work necessary to keep these places functional. Like if there's no one running stores, there aren't restaurant tours, like restaurants can't hire waiters or anything like that. Like that's a massively bad situation for what is arguably the biggest economic technology Americans have, which is our superstar cities. It's not hard to imagine that decades ago, centuries ago, whatever, you would move to the big city because there were a bunch of job opportunities that you couldn't get at home. And like now you just can't do that. Obviously, there's like lots of stuff playing into that, primarily housing, it seems like to me. But it's like, it's a big reason that people have a much tougher task ahead of them if they want to like move up the economic ladder. And this is just another way that it perpetuates economic inequality, I think. I mean, speaking as somebody who moved to D.C. for Vox and then moved back to Cincinnati, I can tell you the housing here is much, much cheaper than it is in D.C. And it's like a very nice welcome benefit of living in Cincinnati. But like, I, I had to go to D.C. first to get my job at Vox. Like, if I couldn't afford to do that because I couldn't have afforded, like, the housing in D.C., it would have been a huge problem for me. I wouldn't be 
talking into this microphone today, right? Like it is just a, a one way that like my social mobility, my career would have been really hindered by the fact that like I looked at DC housing prices and I, I remember when I was going to get my job at Vox and I like almost had a panic attack. I was like, how am I ever going to afford some of these places? Thankfully, I've managed to find some affordable places, but like, like if I'm being honest, it was rough at first. Like it is just to say that like, look, there is a real problem with this in hindering social mobility. There are also sort of similar humanitarian rationales for making it easier to, to move to cities. I think you see this most most visibly with uh, LGBT people. In major American cities, the gay or lesbian or uh, bisexual population, um, I think this, this doesn't include trans people, but is something like 10%, whereas nationally it's more like 2 to 3%. And a lot of that is just sorting that people move from from sort of hostile or also just like not very dense areas. Like when you're a population minority and want to find a partner, it's just harder when there are fewer people around and dense areas are more conducive to that. Um, and so there are huge benefits to people like that or people who were raised in sort of oppressive religious backgrounds or otherwise want to like leave the milieu that they were raised in outside of superstar cities. There's huge, huge advantages humanitarianly to to letting them do that. Part of what was so interesting about this this piece to me is that it's it, it like the open borders discussion connects it to sort of overall productivity in the economy. When I first heard about some some of these zoning concerns, my reaction was like, yeah, it kind of sucks. The housing costs so much in D.C., but that that seems like a D.C. problem. It's annoying to me, but like, is this like a, a am I going to make a federal case about this? Not, not really. But there's a lot of evidence of which this is only the most recent paper that there are real economic costs to productivity of making it harder and more expensive for like smart people to work together, uh, to put it sort of uh, simplistically. And and that it, when you reduce that return, you create these these large scale economic costs that span through the whole economy. Yeah, they allowed like smart people to come to work together. And like, I think a lot of knowledge workers are able to agglomerate in these places. And that creates a lot of economic benefits and it's great for them too. But like what they do there, right, is they also create a massive amount of demand for lower wage workers or not even just lower wage, all service workers. Like if you have, you know, a tech company boom in your area, that means that you need more lawyers, you need more accountants, you need uh, drivers, you need people who are doing restaurant work, you need people to do a bunch of different things. It creates a ton of demand there. And that means is that, uh, people who are not part of this like knowledge economy sector are still able to get a benefit from the economic gains of that region. And, you know, I don't see for the foreseeable future that, you know, really high income people are going to be like really unable to live in these places. Like just looking at the experience of, of yuppies in, in San Francisco, like, yeah, it gets bad and they start like doubling up and four people to a room. But like, you know, they still go there for their <laughs> expensive jobs. I think the real pain points are happening lower down where there are teachers who are driving two hours to get to the school district where they work in. I think the hidden cost here it's people who don't even move, who'd like just say like, there's like no way I can afford that. I can't even attempt to pursue my dreams. And there's not actually somewhere else for them to go because again, the demand has been concentrated in these specific cities. So it's, you know, I think these zoning laws, I think it's, it's really great. That, I mean, I think it's great that we get to talk about it in the context of labor markets, because one way to think about zoning laws is that it's someone creating a barrier to a labor market. It's access to that 
areas um, ability to have a job and have high wages. And it's not just, you know, I think people often generally think about cities as like the amenities that we've been talking about here, whether it's the diverse foods or cultures or shows or things like that. And all that is well and good. But at, at its core here, right, like cities are providing economic opportunity and mobility in a way that people are not able to get in more rural parts of the country. And again, I think there's this question, I think often um, uh, people who are in these high performing cities pose, which is just like, well, why can't we just make another San Francisco? Like, why can't we just make another New York City somewhere else? Like, why do we need to keep letting people in? And I would note to to listeners that this sounds remarkably close to how xenophobes <laughs> talk about immigrants coming to this country. But I, I think that the point that I'm, I'm making here is just that we don't actually know how to do that. We've seen a massive trend in the last few decades of agglomeration happening in several cities um, and you know massive economic gains happening there. And firms and workers are making the choice to move to these places and you know, like short of mandating that they have to like leave, like that's not something that we see changing. Um, I think remote work has been a shock here to that kind of system. And we might see some level of of change in that space. I think it remains to be seen. I think I'm a little skeptical that there's not actually a massive productivity benefit. The, the literature seems pretty strong here that there's a really big productivity benefit to just being in the same space. And also that it's not just that I'm working here at, at Vox and therefore that's more productive for me to be with my coworkers. But you know, if someone chooses to go to a different company within the same industry, they want the industries to be close together and industries want to be close together so they can grab all the best workers from those places, which is why you see you know, uh, when someone leaves Facebook or something like that and they start a new company, they do it in the same area. They don't just like move to a different location. Um, so I think that that's something that people need to think about here is just not just how we're undercutting our, our, our own cities and our own economic opportunity here, but that there, again, is not another alternative. We do not understand the fully the forces of agglomeration. And if we could just create them in different places, we wouldn't have declining cities. Like we just wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't have them. So that's my rant. One thing I would add to that is that Obviously, this is like a, I think everybody on this podcast is for more housing supply and fewer zoning restrictions. Um, if, if nothing else, I think Jerusalem would go after us if we didn't. So we, <laughs> so we have to say that. I, but, I, I agree. In even before Jerusalem's campaign of terror and intimidation. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I would add to that is like one of the tricky things here is how does federal policy affect local zoning regulations and, and all of that? You know, look at the example of D.C. One thing I think could be done is. Well, what if federal agencies were spread out around the country more? What if there were some of these federal agencies? Like, there's no inherent reason that every single federal agency has to be in D.C. In fact, that's not the case right now. The CDC is in Atlanta, for example. So, like, what if some of these agencies were moved to other cities just to, like, you know, ease some of the problems in in terms of, like, demand and density and all of that? And also maybe revitalize some of, like, the Midwestern cities that have been struggling. Like, I don't know, if you took NIH and just plopped it down in Cleveland— How would that benefit Cleveland sort of thing? I mean, it it would be nice, too, if like maybe the federal government could encourage private companies to do the same, move their headquarters or encourage remote working if the research is more positive than than Jerusalem is framing it or or whatever (laughs) it might be. But like my, my first solution to this would definitely be just build more housing. But like while we're stuck in this terrible situation, there are things that could be done to, I think, alleviate the problem and aren't really in the public conversation as much as perhaps they should be. I agree. It's potentially possible that you could have people pushing their either um, federal agencies or or encouraging 
however you could to get people to move their headquarters. You know, it begs the question, like, will there actually be economic costs and productivity mm-hmm. costs to doing so? Like, and it's and if there are, like, how much are they? Like, is it enough to, like, justify doing it? Like, maybe, but, like, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Otherwise, I think that there would be some firms, like, doing that. Um, I think that, you know, it's possible that the ecosystem, like, people who work at the EPA might go work at HHS because they have both, like, coding experience and it's not, like, specific to the agency that they work at and that those workers are going to miss out on higher wages if they can't compete between those two um, agencies, which is bad for that worker. Or it also is the case that those agencies might miss out on good workers because they're not able to hire from the broader pool of people who work in federal government and they're only work in the pool of people who came to this area to work in in this space. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question of, of whether that would work. But also, to, I think, to uh, for the third time, bring it back to our open borders conversation, there's this um, researcher, Andrea Steinmeier, who um, looked at the effect of the local ability of housing and how that influenced political backlash to increased immigrants and, and, and refugees coming into a country. And when housing is tight, I mean, I think this makes sense, right? When housing is tight and, uh, and there's not enough housing in a place and, and, and uh, there's bad housing policy that might be causing that, he actually saw the Freedom Party of Austria, which is a right-wing party in Austria, their vote share goes up um, in, in those places. And the reasoning that he has there is that people cannot stay long term and form like long term connections within the community if there's not housing available to them. Um, I guess they become like transient or potentially homeless or something like that. And that creates negative associations, people coming in. And I'd also argue that it's probably also the case that these are individuals who then become if you are a refugee or an immigrant coming in, you are now competing directly for the limited stock of housing with native born Americans or immigrants who have been there for a longer period of time, creating the sorts of conflict that we think are, are, are really harmful and can create political backlash. So we've seen here in the United States as we've been trying to resettle some Afghan refugees, the I think I've mentioned it before in this podcast that there's been an issue with them trying to find enough housing for people to live in. Um, we're at a historic supply crunch in the United States right now. And if you settle them anyway, and it creates those kinds of trade-offs with Native-born Americans, you are literally engineering pub- <laughs> like you know, a political backlash to the policy of immigration. So I think yeah. that that's you know, housing and everything. Well, and, and I think this connects to something in the the Alicina, uh paper that we were talking about earlier is that they they found generally strong evidence for for backlash against immigration. But one of the exceptions they found is that when people are in, are in a position to be in contact with immigrants and are sort of sympathetic, that they find with sort of already immigration sympathetic people, sort of liberal minded voters living near immigrants and amid a wave of immigration makes them be more tolerant and gets around backlash. And so, yeah, I think that the solution is to upzone major cities and and ask everyone who has a like in this house, hate has no home, uh, no human is illegal, refugees are welcome, to to like live by that and like let there be an apartment building next door to them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I should get back to my life in in DC superstar city uh, and enjoy its <laughs> its many benefits. Uh, by which I mean, of course, that I'm going to watch the most recent Succession episode. Uh, but before I do that. Thank you to Vox's Herman Lopez and Jerusalem Demsis for, for coming on board, as usual. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. If you haven't already signed up for the Weeds newsletter uh, after our repeated badgering, please do that. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. Herman writes it most of the time. It's great. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with an interview from Jerusalem about, you guessed it, housing. There is more coming for you. We will see you then.
The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.